Loving Father, we come to you, first of all, in recognition of the fact that you are the eternal God and King of the universe. And we're amazed that you have asked us to crawl up into your lap and to call you Abba, to call you Father. For you are filled with life and astounding wisdom, which you graciously share with your children. You're the complete package, a shining example of what loving Father should be. Thank you for your time, which you give daily, your care, which you give freely, your love, which you give unconditionally. We're grateful. We are needy people. And we bring our needs to you as we have no one else to bring them to. We have families that are grieving. We have families and family members with significant and unrelenting medical challenges that need health and lifting up. We have ones looking for a meaningful job. We have loved ones that need to come and accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. We have brothers and sisters in Burkina Faso being attacked and killed for the, their faith in the gospel. And we bring all these needs to you. We bring them on Father's Day because every day is a Father's Day for you. Lord, give us the wisdom to turn these items over to you as we beg for your forgiveness for our failures. Help us to love you more, to trust you completely, and to share the reality of our faith with others. Because it's in Christ's name we pray and for his sake. Amen. Amen. I'll take that. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us for worship uh, this morning at our second service of the day. Um, I want to make sure you all know about these. Uh, they're little half bulletins, and we have them at the countertop here or out in the lobby there or the gymnasium um, over there. Um, and they give you just some information. If you're visiting with us and you scan the QR code, you can get connected to more information and also help us connect with you. Uh, there's about five events on the front page that just show you what's going on. Lots of kids and youth ministry stuff. Uh, one thing to know is that tomorrow we've got a group of middle schoolers and a couple of adults that will go to a middle school camp at Covenant College called Edge Conference. And uh, so be praying for our middle school group this week. Um, and then also a week from today is the beginning of our VBS program uh, that starts uh, on Sunday night, the 26th, and, and continues throughout next week. So next Sunday when you come, you might see some decorations around the building as you come in as we start to gear up for serving our kids and our congregation and also kids in the community. So if you haven't signed up your kids, please do. If you know of any other kids in your neighborhood or in your family to invite, please, please do that and get them signed up. We'd love to have uh, more children join us 
for that important event. Um, other things to pray about on there. There's a sign-up sheet for the Sunday evening Bible study that Jason talked about last week. If you want to be a part of the communication as the details are finalized for that Bible study on 1 Corinthians, there's a sign-up sheet on the table in the gymnasium over here. So if you want to make your way out that way on your way out this morning, uh, you can sign up so that you can be um, kept in the loop on all communications uh, for that. But I do want to say Happy Father's Day. And as a recognition of Father's Day, we've got um, Richard Talley is going to come and uh, join me up here. And he's got a special uh, Father's Day poem that he's going to read for us. Come on, Richard. Good morning, everybody. Do it for the recording? Okay, I'm sorry, sir. <laughs> I want to say happy Father's Day to all the young men out there and the older men because this day is precise. And I'm, the reason I'm saying it that way, I know all of y'all don't watch TV or you don't went to a game, and when they do a victory, whoever wins, and the young person comes out there, they always says, I love you, Mom. They never said nothing about the dad. So I'm going to honor the dads this morning, if you don't mind. And we wrote this at a spare of the moment. It's called To Our Fathers. First and foremost, I would like to say special thanks and love to my grandpa. Even though he's not underneath the sun, I know he'd be full of joy to see what he has accomplished with his offspring. I better put the daughters in there and the sons. For one thing for sure, my father was like grandpa, giving us advice. He was our life giver, the authoritarian, the protector with integrity plus principles and always being concise. So as a tear runs down my cheek, thinking of my father, I want to stop and think of yours. I want everybody to stop and think of their mother. Please put the father there first. I should say it that way. But think of your father because he was a figure in your life. And I just want you to stop and think of yours, the male figure in your life, if that's no bother. First, let me inform you about the father. F stands for fulfilling his obligation as being a man. A, always trying to hold off his offspring accountable to ensure the family was safe. T, for teaching his children what was right and wrong, encouraging them to do their best. H, helping off the offspring with the value of life. E, ending the love and respect of his family. And he really enjoyed that. A lot of us don't believe it. Reminiscing about the love he gave or tried to give unconditionally. Well, as you try to remember your dad, it might bring memories of sadness or joy. But we all must remember that when we were born, boy or girl, he was there. So don't forget there was a father up above who was there all the time, unconditionally, with his love. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and happy Father's Day to all you fathers. Amen. Thank you, Richard. Let's go to Lamentations chapter 4. We're going to continue in our study of learning what it means to lament, particularly in this book of Lamentations, a tough one. A tough subject matter to, uh, to look at today um, in particular, because in this, 
we see Lamentations 4, literally everything falls apart, and that includes the family. Uh, I've given you some background uh, previously in this series about what the book of Lamentations is all about, the setting into which it is written, and you have this nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem that is under siege, and things start to fall apart, and everything goes bad all at once. And when I say everything goes bad all at once, I mean that the leadership falls apart, that the family falls apart. I mean that everything, the religious life, the family life, the governmental institutions, every institution fails at the same time, and chaos in Jerusalem. That's where we are. But we see chaos in Jerusalem is a result of of God allowing this to happen, of God enacting his judgment against the nation for a generation after generation of sin and rebellion against God. So God has been patient. God has waited to enact justice. But here we see in the book of Lamentations, it's time for justice. I want you to think about the world that we live in today and the number of conversations we've had over the last um, couple of years as things in our society seem to be falling and we put crisis after crisis after crisis. And we have in the last couple of years endured um, great health crises. We've endured uh, natural disasters. We've endured economic crisis. We've endured more political crises than we could count at this point. We've endured uh, racial uh, division and crisis. We've endured crisis in families. We've endured crisis in schools. And every age has been affected by what we see going on within our society at large and even within, let's be real, even within the churches of our nation. We see churches failing. We see, we see authority in every area of life. Now we seem to have a lower trust than ever for our leaders and those in authority because we see corruption all around. And guys, that, the tension and the distress of where we live today and looking at the news every day and see crisis after crisis after crisis, let me get you thinking about that. But then as you think about that, I want you to realize that Lamentations 4 is way worse. The, the crisis that the nation of Jerusalem experiences, maybe we can get a sense of it by thinking about what we are enduring as society. But what they are experiencing goes far, far deeper than all of the crises we face. This is a crisis where the impossible becomes possible. And you have thing after thing mentioned in this passage that when you think, well, this isn't going to fail. Well, this isn't going to fail. Well, this isn't going to fall. All of those impossible things happen and fall apart all at once. And that's the brokenness of Lamentations 4. So I'm going to start out this morning. We're going to read through the 22 verses of Lamentations 4. And as I read through, I want you to just track and listen to all of the different societal institutions that are falling apart. And then we'll come back after I read it. I'll go through all 22 verses. We'll come back and then we'll start to unpack it slowly together. Lamentations 4, starting in verse 1. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel. 
like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives it to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. But now, their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones. It has become dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. And here's where it gets hardest. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter into the gates of Jerusalem. But this was for the sons of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her, blood, of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, the people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our, watching, we, in our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were number, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations." Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. Lamentations 4, 1 through 22. Tough. And I say, I feel like every passage I read from, from Lamentations, I'm like, guys, this is going to be tough. But Lamentations 4.10, you start talking about interfamily cannibalism, this is where it gets real. This is where the crisis becomes completely out of hand and at new levels than what we've seen previously in the book of Lamentations. And this is where we see all of life is falling apart. The only glimmer of hope that you see anywhere in Lamentations chapter 4 itself is in the first half of 422. In the first half of 422, what he's saying is essentially, uh, daughter of, of Zion, city of Jerusalem, your punishment has now been paid for, you will not live like this forever. That's what he's saying. That's the only hope there. God's not going to leave you like this forever. He's not going to pour out his punishment on you forever because now your sin has been punished 
and it is accomplished. That's the only place of hope in this passage, and the hope is, well, it's not going to be like this forever. It's now been accomplished, and it's now ending. But in this passage, there's a lot that we can take, and and here's the beauty of the Old Covenant Scriptures. Uh, The Old Covenant Scriptures, taken as their own and interpreted on their own, here in Lamentations 4, as an example, can often lead us in, leave us in a place of confusion, uh, maybe a place of despair. Boy, that's really depressing. Uh, maybe a place of just anger. Why would God do this? Why, why would God pour out his wrath on his people like this? But certainly, on their own, without the new covenant, they leave us in a place of hopelessness, where you're left asking the question, well, what is going to happen? What is God going to do about this incredible crisis that God has now poured out his wrath on his people? What's God going to do next? And that's where seeing the new covenant, reading the, the, the new covenant, and seeing how the old covenant is preparing us for what God is doing that is new is so essential and necessary. And the old covenant, guys, it's beautiful when we see it in the context of what God unveils in the new covenant. But what we're going to do this morning, here's how we'll unpack it. We're going to unpack how God allows and causes the impossible to become possible in a negative way. The impossible becomes possible in the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. And here's why I use those words, the impossible becoming possible. Look back at 4.1. 4.1, Jeremiah gives us an image that sets the, the context for all that's going to happen in this passage. In Lamentations 4.1, he says, How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy ones lie scattered at the head of every street. What does he mean? Let me ask you a question. For the gold experts in the room, uh, does gold tarnish? Well, yes and no. Depends on what kind of gold you have. So I don't want to make anybody nervous. If, if your gold ring is tarnished, I'm not going to tell you it's not gold. But what I will tell you is that pure gold, 24 karat gold, does not tarnish. The, the, the purity of real pure gold will not interact with oxygen and tarnish and tarnish and lose its luster. However, a lower quality of gold, 14 karat gold, that will, it's still very pure, not going to tarnish much, but over time, the lower qualities of gold do tarnish. So what he's saying about pure gold, when pure gold grows dim and when pure gold is changed, it reveals that it was not as pure as you thought it was. It, it reveals that, that it's, either, it's not pure gold, or it reveals, as I think is the point of this passage, things that were once thought impossible have now become possible. Specifically, the gold he's talking about in Lamentations 4 is specific gold in a specific place. The second half of that verse, the holy stones lie scattered. What are those holy stones? What's he talking about? Those are the stones of the temple itself. God's house, God's dwelling place, those stones have been cast down as the temple is destroyed. And so it's not just that gold has tarnished. It's this specific gold that was adorning God's house in which they put so much confidence. It was impossible to think that the temple of God could have been destroyed, could have been torn down by the enemies of God. It was impossible until it happened. And so why did it happen? And what God's going to do next? Those are the questions for this passage. 
So we'll see how the impossible becomes possible in five different areas. Number one, the temple has fallen. That was thought impossible. And as the temple falls comes kind of 1B. The walls of the city fell too. That had to happen first. But number two, leadership has failed. And by that, I mean every category of leadership in the nation. Failure number three, uh, the family has failed. An impossible result, number four on this list, exile has returned. The great national identity, the worship of Israel, always looked back to one specific event when God miraculously delivered the people out of exile. And now they're back in exile. And even crazier than that, not only that the nation of Israel that was, that was redeemed from exile, that's crazy to think that they would ever go back to exile. What's even crazier is the location of their exile in the heart of Jerusalem. They're living as exiles in God's capital city. It makes no sense. The impossible has become possible. And finally... The impossible has become possible in that the Lord regards his people no more. We'll unpack these five truths, and then we'll see, okay, how does God bring any hope out of this situation? And I'm just going to tell you, as we find the hope, we're going to go to the new covenant to see how God is the restorer of all things. So first on that list of five, the temple has fallen, and so has all of Jerusalem. Look at verse 12 here. Uh, Lamentations 4.12 says this, the kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter into the gates of Jerusalem. So listen, when the people of Israel said, nobody's going to conquer us, nobody's going to breach our walls, this city is impenetrable, that was not just hubris, that was not just arrogance, because not only did the nation say that about themselves and their own walls, the kings of the earth and every inhabitant of the world, everyone that had ever seen Jerusalem's strategic location and seen the walls had said the same thing. That city's impenetrable. Why? Because God called his people to build the capital city on a mount, on a, on a big hill. It's hard to, to go up a hill and fight a wall that is built into a hill. And, so, and the mountains around Jerusalem provided a natural barrier for the city. So therefore, Jerusalem was in a physical sense, a practical sense, a very difficult city to penetrate, a very difficult city to defeat. And they took confidence in that. God, in his wisdom, built his city in an impenetrable location. And that's not just Israel saying that about themselves. That's the kings of the earth, the foreign kings, looking at the city of Jerusalem saying, we're not going to get up there. We're not going to make it up that hill. We're not going to defeat that city. It, so it's impossible until it happens. And it happens because God caused it to happen. It happened because God not only withdrew his protection, he literally sent the Babylonians to judge his own people. And it happens because what, what God did in sending the Babylonians to judge his people is God gave the Babylonians the military insight to defeat Jerusalem via siege. And what the siege did is that for over two years, the nation of Babylon was encamped around Jerusalem. And they cut off the city of Jerusalem from the outside world. That's why in the book of Lamentations, you see so much about starvation, because the way to victory for the Babylonians was starvation. Because within the city walls, they had a certain amount of food stored up. 
had a certain amount of water stored up. Actually, King Hezekiah had built tunnels to enable the people to get water in and out in the event of a siege. But the water, or, or the, the water was fine. The food that you store up over time only lasts so long. And the Babylonians said, we're not in a hurry. We'll wait these guys out. We're going to wait out this, the city of Jerusalem. We're going to, by this siege, we are going to wait until the people are faced with a dilemma. Either starve to death or let us in. And you have people that did both. Over time, eventually, Babylon got in as the nation got desperate. But it's not just the strategic location of the walls that gave the, the city of Jerusalem this confidence. It's also a spiritual conviction that the walls would not fall and the temple would not fall. Why? Because why would the Almighty God let His house be destroyed? They, they believed, and this is what, you go back and read the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah comes before Lamentations, both in the order of our Bible and also chronologically. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah the prophet spends years warning the people, repent. If you do not repent, bad stuff's going to happen. God's going to pour out his judgment on this nation. And the people are like, no, 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 we don't need to repent. Because God's house is here. God's not going to let his house fall. As long as we stay close to God's house, we're good. And Jeremiah says, no, God is removing his presence from the house. God is pouring out judgment on the nation. You need to repent. And then false prophets show up and say, don't listen to Jeremiah. God's house is here. God's not going to let his house fall. But the impossible became possible. God removed his presence from his house to the temple, and the temple failed. The, pe the people were warned about it, but then it happened. And that's why Jeremiah has such despair, as the nation as a whole is experiencing this despair. So the temple falls, the walls fall, but also leadership has failed. Old Covenant, Old Testament Israel has three primary leadership roles, leadership offices um, within the nation. The prophets, the priests, and the kings. And you, you might add to that the judges, but that's a temporary office that is then over, overcome by the kings. The kings replace the judges within the leadership of Israel. So you have prophets, priests, and kings, the three primary functions. And those three offices throughout the history of Israel sort of serve as, as three branches of leadership and serve as checks and balances for each other. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. A, a good example of it not working is Elijah was a prophet sent by God, and Elijah was sent to go speak to the king Ahab, and Ahab didn't listen. And time after time, Elijah's ministry career of being the voice of God, the word prophet means one who speaks for God, literally the mouthpiece of of God. Uh, the king, Ahab, did not listen to the prophet Elijah. And, and actually, many kings did not listen to the prophets. But sometimes it did work. And sometimes when the kings were wicked, the prophets would show up with a message from God and the kings would repent. The best example of this is David himself, who we think of as a great king, but David had some colossal failures. One central failure in David's life, God sent a prophet named Nathan to get in his face. And in that sense, the prophetic role, the office of prophet, served as a check, a balance against the power of the king who had, who had taken his power and authority and misused it for his own pleasure. And the prophet confronted the king, and the king repented and turned back to God. 
So prophets, priests, and kings all have a vital function. The kings lead the people politically. The, the, price, or the priests lead the um, religious life and worship of the nation. And the prophets step in to speak for God when one of those two offices fails. All three offices are so important, and all three offices have failed in this, in this period in Judah's history. Look at Lamentations 4 again. First, from the royal sense, before we hear about prophets, priests, and kings, we hear about princes, which are related to kings, obviously. You know how that works. Verse 7, her princes, meaning the princes of, of Jerusalem, her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Then verse 8, now their face is blacker than soot. I'm going to tell you two things that that means. That means a practical thing. Number one, first, these people were wealthy, were honored, were clean, were, were recognized and appreciated in society, and now they're living on the street, homeless, poor, like everybody else. There's no difference between the poverty of the poorest person in Jerusalem and the, the richest prince in Jerusalem. Everybody's poor, everybody's dejected. But there's also a sense in which Jeremiah is communicating a spiritual reality about these people as well. When he says, once the princes of Jerusalem were whiter than snow, were pure, um, and now they're black as soot. If you think about that in a spiritual reality or in a character reference, you know what that means. If I look at you and I say, this guy, this dude is pure. He's whiter than milk. He's purer than snow. You consider that a good character evaluation. And I say, this dude over here, his face is black as soot. As a character evaluation, that ain't good news for that guy. You know what that means. And what Jeremiah is saying is, number one, they've moved from riches to poverty, but also, number two, in a spiritual reality, those that were once trusted as righteous and full of character are now wicked, and you can see the blackness of the evil of their hearts on their very faces. We cannot trust them. But it's not just the princes that are the problem. Verse 13, you know, we read verse 12 a second ago. Verse 12 says the impossible has happened, the walls have fallen down. Verse 13 tells you why the walls fell down. Verse 13 says, This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests. They shed blood in the midst of, of her, in the midst of the city. The, the she is the city of Jerusalem in this passage, as throughout the book of Lamentations. Uh, they, shed, they shed blood in the midst of the city of Jerusalem, the blood of the righteous. The prophets... And the priests misused their roles of authority and acted in wickedness. I told you the book of Jeremiah is a prequel to the book of Lamentations. All through the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, Repent, turn, something bad is coming, God's enacting his justice. The people don't listen, so then you get to the book of Lamentations, and Jeremiah is pouring out his heart in lament and in pain because exactly what he predicted has come to fruition. He doesn't, he doesn't, in self-righteousness, say, I told you so to the nation, because he's broken at what the I told you so meant. What he predicted has come to fruition in Lamentations, and he's broken by it. So in Jeremiah, in, in, throughout the book of Jeremiah, he's warning them, turn, 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 repent, stop sinning, return to God who has made a covenant with you. And in Jeremiah 5, he speaks specifically of the problem of the prophets. Because I said... There were people, while Jeremiah was saying, repent, turn, there were other people over here saying, well, we got the house of God over here. We're good. Don't listen to Jeremiah. He's just doomsday prophet over there. We're good over here. Jeremiah 5, verse 30 and 31. He says, 
An appalling thing, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. What will you do when the end comes? So here's what happens, and I didn't put it on the screen, so just bear with me for a second. You can write it down and look it up later. Uh, Jeremiah 5, 30 and 31 says, Your prophets are liars. And because the prophets are liars, the priests are wrong because the priests are following the liars. And the people like the message coming from the liars. Why? Because the message coming from the liars is God's going to miraculously show up. The, walls, the city walls aren't going to fall down. The temple's not going to fall down. Everything's going to be good. But those are not prophets sent from God. So the leadership of Israel has failed at every level. The prophets are lying. The priests are following bad advice. And therefore, the people are living in oblivious sin, not hearing the message, the true message God is sending. Repent and turn from your sin. And the people like it. The people like not hearing the truth because they don't want to hear repentance. They don't want to hear the problem is your sin. They don't want to hear you need to turn around before everything, before God pours out his judgment on the nation. So that's the prophets and the priests. They failed. The third office is the king. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 of Lamentations 4. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. Now, first reading, probably don't know what that means, and that's okay. Um, the breath of our nostrils, let's take it carefully. The Lord's anointed. Who's the Lord's anointed? Someone say Jesus. You can say Jesus. That's the right answer, but actually not the answer in this passage. That sounds sacrilegious to say that Jesus isn't the answer to this passage, but that's not what the Lord's anointed refers to in this particular passage. The Lord's anointed in this passage is the king of Israel, or the king of Judah, sorry. This is the nation of Israel is already in exile. This is the southern kingdom of Judah. The Lord's anointed is the king. Here's what the people were saying. Well, the walls aren't going to fall. The temples aren't going to fall. That'll never happen. But also, we still got the king. As long as the king sits on the throne, we're good. Until the king wasn't in the throne. Verse 20, the king's in a pit. And so they had put their confidence in the king. The king will save us. The king will deliver us. It says, under his shadow, under the shadow of the king, we shall live among the nations. This king will protect us. We can trust him. As long as he's sitting on the throne, there is hope for Israel. Even as the Babylonians gather at our walls, there's hope because the king's on his throne. And then, look at that first, few, uh, first five words. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's appointed, or the Lord's anointed, was captured. Have you ever heard something so stunning so tragic that you just literally lost your breath. That's, what, that's the image Jeremiah is giving us here. When the people of Jerusalem, when the news spread through the city of Jerusalem, the king has been taken from his throne and thrown into a pit. It's like the entirety of the nation lost their breath in one moment. The breath of our nostrils was taken from us, and we had no breath. We had no hope. Everyone has failed. The prophets are liars, the priests are untrustworthy, and the king is sitting in a pit, and he can't help you anymore. But it gets worse. It's not just the leadership. It's not just the leadership that has failed. This is as, this is as hard as, I, I mean, literally, this is as hard as Scripture gets right here in Lamentations 4. Because the family completely and utterly falls apart. Happy Father's Day, everybody. 
You know, Father's Day is a beautiful day to celebrate, and, and I so appreciate Richard and his heart in coming to share with us. Um, Father's Day is a beautiful day for me and my family. I know Father's Day can be hard when you're in a broken family situation. At Mother's Day, Father's Day, whatever it is, there are some days that can remind us and some crises that remind us of exactly how hard days like this can be. And you know what's beautiful about the gut-wrenching passage we're about to read? Is that God has a plan for broken families. God has a plan to restore the broken families. And I guarantee you, nobody in here has experienced anything worse than what I'm about to read to you. So Lamentations 4, verse 3. Even jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, and no one gives it to them. I'll tell you exactly what that means. That means there are starving babies that are not getting milk from their own mothers. Heinous, tragic, we don't understand. We don't understand if it's because the, the mother's milk has gone dry, the mothers are starving themselves, I'm sure but the babies are not getting fed. And this is why you want to question God's justice. God, why would you pour out your justice on your chosen people? Well, look at how wicked the people are. Because that's not the worst of it. Verse 10. The hands of compassionate women, which means the hands of, I think what he's saying is, the hands of women who were once considered compassionate and kind. Those women that were once compassionate and kind, they've boiled their own children. And those children became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. Destruction, despair, starvation caused a level of desperation that is heinous, that is tragic, and it's hard for me to stand up here and tell you about. That's the brokenness of how bad it got in Jerusalem under siege. Dying babies, starving to death, and it gets worse than babies dying in their mother's arms. It goes to babies dying at their mother's hands. The height of wickedness. Unimaginable wickedness. So yeah, leadership failing is one thing. But when the family fails at this level, it's all that much more tragic. So then the result, as God pours out his justice, it's like the people have returned to exile. And there's multiple passages, there's multiple references to this. In fact, he says, uh, verse 6, Jeremiah says, you know, Sodom was better off than we are. Because Sodom, why? Why would he say that? Sodom was an instant. They were gone. God poured out his judgment and his fire on Sodom in an instant. And then in verse 9, happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced, stabbed by the, lacks of the, fruit, by the lack of the fruits of the field. Because the fields were outside the city walls, they couldn't get any food inside. They said it would have been easier if we, if we died by the sword than die by a thousand cuts of starvation. It's the long-term suffering that led to so much despair and so much hurt and pain for the nation here. And so, he says at the end, he references it. He says, verse 22, God will keep you in exile no longer. And in that, he makes clear the experience that the people were having. It feels like we're in exile. I mean, literally, this is my home. I'm living on the same street I've always lived on, but this is my home. 
But because Babylon has come in and taken control and blocked off our food and torn down our walls and removed our king and and torn down the temple where we worship, it feels like we're living in a foreign land. We are exiles on our home turf. And it's the impossible that's coming to fruition. God, who delivered his people from exile at a central moment in Israel's history, has now put his people back in exile in the promised land. It's crazy to think about. And it's just stunning to them. It's the height of despair. But it gets worse than that. The Lord regards them no more. Because that's where hope ends, right? When he says, in verse 16, the Lord himself has scattered them, has scattered these people, and he will regard them no more. Which means he's not, he's not moving to deliver them. He's not moving to save them by the abundance of his mercy. Now, God has, listen, Scripture makes it clear, God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. God makes that clear of himself in Scripture. He also makes it clear that he is a just God who will by no means allow a sinner to go unpunished. And so now the loving kindness, the steadfast love has waited for generation after generation after generation, and now he's pouring out his justice and not letting the sinners to go on unpunished for their sins. So what hope is there? This is where, guys, we're going to turn the page a little bit to go New Covenant to see that God has a plan for all of this. God, The same God who two chapters before said, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. That is still true. And in the New Covenant, we see what Jeremiah didn't even fully conceive of himself. Jeremiah doesn't know how this story ends. All Jeremiah can say in any level of hope is you will not be punished for your sin forever. God is not going to allow you to live in exile forever. God has a plan to end this, Judah. But he doesn't know how it works. We get to see how it works. It's the beauty of being a new covenant believer in Christ. We get to see how it works. We get to live in the period where God has made it clear. So let's look. What happens when the temple fails? Let's look at each of these things. The temple fails, Jerusalem fails, leadership fails, family fails, we live in exile, and the Lord turns his back. What happens? What provision has God made in the new covenant for those? He made provision for all of it. When the temple fails, God builds a new one. John 2, Jesus is standing in the eyesight of the temple that has been rebuilt since Jeremiah's days. It's a new temple, this one built by the Romans. And Jesus is talking about that temple, and then all of a sudden he says, this temple will be destroyed and it will be rebuilt in three days. Everybody's like, dude, you're crazy. See how big that building is? Nobody's going to build that building in three days. But he's not talking about the building. Because in that moment, Jesus calls himself the temple. He says, that building over there, don't worry about that anymore. I'm the temple. Why? Because the temple is the dwelling place of God with man. How does God dwell with man when Jesus is on the earth? Because God, Jesus is God himself dwelling with man. But it gets better than that. Because not just is Jesus the temple that is destroyed and then rebuilt in three days when he rises from the dead. First Peter tells us that after that, after Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, Jesus is no longer just the temple. He's the cornerstone of the temple. And then who's the temple? The temple is the people of God that God is building together. The dwelling place of God is with man, God's people, through the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us as believers. And so on that, 
Jesus is able to fully say to the woman at the well in John 4, he's sitting in Samaria, he's thirsty, he's talking to this woman at the well, and she says, okay, are we supposed to worship in Samaria, where they're right there, or are we supposed to worship in Jerusalem? And he says, no, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're worshiping in Samaria or Jerusalem, because when God's people worship in spirit, as the spirit indwells them, and in truth, it doesn't matter if you're in Samaria or Jerusalem or good news for us, Dalton, Georgia. You can worship God where you are because the Spirit of God comes to man because the dwelling place of God is with man through the power of His Spirit. So there's, there's not a temple in Jerusalem right now. And that's okay. Because Jesus became the temple, became God's dwelling place with man. And then Jesus became the cornerstone of the new temple that He is building. So when the temple fails, God makes a new one. When leadership fails... God restores all three offices. Jesus is the true prophet, the mouthpiece of God whose words never fail. He never lies to his people. He tells us the truth, and his words become life for us. And through his words, we get life and life abundant because Jesus is the true prophet. Jesus is the true priest, and boy, is he a better one because he's not just the priest that offers sacrifice for sin. He's the priest that offers himself He's a true and better priest because he is both the priest offering the sacrifice and he is the lamb going to be sacrificed. And he's even better because it is a once and for all sacrifice. It's not an annual sacrifice. It doesn't go with a calendar. It doesn't come in, in feasts like the old covenant uh, sacrifices do. Jesus is a once for all sacrifice as the true and better, the ultimate, the final priest and sacrifice. Because in the new covenant... The office of priest, which, was, which failed in the Old Covenant, is restored in Jesus. And what about king? I asked you the question, what does is, what is the Lord's anointed means? Actually, the word Messiah or Christ, it, 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 is, it literally means the Lord's anointed one, the anointed one. And so Jesus is the true king and the final king. He is the king that is never going to be destroyed because he is the king that was thrown. You know, Lamentations 4, there's a king thrown in a pit. Jesus was thrown in a grave. And the grave couldn't hold him. And he busted out of the grave. He's the king that will never be defeated because he's already defeated the greatest enemy. He's defeated death. He's defeated the grave. He's defeated God's enemy, Satan, the accuser. And he has therefore defeated our sin on our behalf. And when the family fails, when the family fails, God creates a new one. His family, where he adopts his sons and daughters into his family through the sacrifice of the older brother Jesus who sheds his blood so that we can enter in and be called the family of God. So when the family fails, God restores that too. And when we live in exile, God says, I know. God says, I know. First Peter, read it. It's all about exile. And it's what God has called us to right now. First Peter says, we live in this earth as sojourners and exiles. We live recognizing that our home citizenship is not actually in the United States of America, but in the kingdom of heaven. That's our primary allegiance, our primary citizenship. 
And so whatever national identity we have on this earth, it is secondary, because, and we live as sojourners and exiles within the nations of this earth because of our allegiance to the kingdom of heaven. And God says, be ready for that. Be ready for the challenges that come. Sometimes you will feel not at home because you're not. Sometimes you'll feel like an alien because you are. Because you're not from around here. And you don't live according to the culture of this land or this earth. But you live as a product of the kingdom of heaven, as a member of God's family. And you live for the eternal home and the eternal kingdom. So yeah, be ready to live in exile. God has a plan for that too. And it's what he's called you to right now. And finally, the last one. When the Lord regards his people no more. Because he must punish sin, he atones for the sins of his people. He now can turn his face towards his people and and declare his people to be righteous. Because, yeah, the, the patience of the Lord expired and he had to deal with sin. And he dealt with sin once and for all with Jesus on the cross so that all that receive that sacrifice through confession of sin, repentance, and believing in Jesus, all who receive the blood of Christ credited to our account, we are now righteous in him. So when the Lord regards his people no more, he pours out his sin or he pours out his judgment on his own son who takes the sin from us and gives his righteousness to us. So now, guys, this is who we are. We're in worship. I'm going to ask the band to come up one more time, but we're going to end it like this, guys. Recognize that Lamentations 4 shows us the brokenness of all brokenness. That the family fails, the leadership fails, worship fails, um, the people are in exile, and God has, has regarded the people, God disregards the people. And now, guys, look around, look at where we are now as the people of God. We've been called into a new family by the blood of Jesus. We have been given new leadership in Jesus and in God the Father himself. We have been given, uh, we are being built together as the new temple, the dwelling place of God by his spirit, which joins us in this room right now. And we are called to live in this season of exile as we prepare for his eternal kingdom. We long for his eternal kingdom. We don't apologize that we don't feel at home on this earth. We shouldn't feel at home on this earth. We long for a true and better kingdom that still lies ahead. And it's a promise that we can retain hope in Remain confident in at all times because the Lord does show grace and mercy to his people because he poured out his judgment on his own son so that we could stand now and we worship in the new life we've been given. So
Father, we, on the, on the basis of Jesus, based on all that he has done for us, we who were sinners and rebelled against your law and against your commands, Father, we lay it all on Jesus in the confession of our sin, recognizing that he bears our sin for us, takes our punishment for us, and he gives us the gift of righteousness so that we can truly stand just, righteous, and clean before you. And for that, we praise you, O Father. And it's only on the basis of the finished work of Jesus that we can say we are a redeemed people called by your name. So Father, now send us out. Send us out with excitement for this message and all that Christ has done. Send us out in excitement for your great faithfulness and your new morning mercies so that we may serve our world well. Because in calling us to be exiles, you have not called us to not care about the crises of our land, but you've called us to care deeply, to care deeply and love deeply those that are hurting and broken around us. And to most importantly, share the message of eternal salvation for those that are sinners. And so, Father, we just ask, make our our paths straight this week as we go as ambassadors of the gospel into each and every place that we walk. And we praise you for your spirit as we go. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.
Now receive the blessing from the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.